When we discuss Motown, the company's political legacy is often tied to the 1971 release of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. But the label's past with politics and music goes back years beforehand. University of Michigan musicology professor Mark Clegg has studied Motown and written an article called What's Going On? The Prehistory of Motown at 45 RPM. I spoke with him about the lesser-known history of Motown politics and protest music and what we can understand about Barry Gordy's politics of the 1960s through the lens of the label's music. Yeah, there are an amazing number of Motown groups, and, and this, you know, my insights are largely based on this incredible release of 11 volumes of the complete Motown singles on 60-plus CDs, and, uh, and also a friendship with uh, Motown's first publicist named Alan Abrams, um, who has unfortunately since passed away, but he um, had deposited some of his materials in the Bentley Library here in Ann Arbor, and it was actually a student who found them and realized that, that Al lived in Ohio and called him up and interviewed him for a class, and then I ended up inviting him to visit the class, and we ended up getting to know each other and worked together on several projects over the years, but he really made me aware of just the, the the kind of you know trial and error early history of Motown, where they were just trying to survive. You know, I mean, cash flow was hard, hits were hard. Um, they were not early on, you know, the juggernaut that they became, and they just they would do anything to make it work. And they had a lot of white artists, for example, um, artists like Soupy Sales, the comedian that he was signed to Motown. I mean, there's just this crazy list of people who you know don't fall under the, our sort of vision of the Motown sound. You know, we, when we think of Marvin Gaye, when we think of the Supremes, you know, the, the incredible artists that came out of Motown, you know, we think of a pretty narrow band of, of their activity that, that really made it huge. And that's, but the Motown sound is really a, a sort of experiment in real time where they were just trying everything and, and throwing everything out there to make it work. And one of those things was to make music relevant, was to make it connect to people's real experience. If you read Barry Gordy's um, autobiography, To Be Loved, one of, he gives a set of songwriting rules. And one of the, you know, among those things are like, don't be a cliche, but, but to say something meaningful, say something real. And so a song like Shop Around, you know, which was one of the big early hits, you know, really talks about a young person, you know, wanting to get married, wanting to explore the world sexually and, and seeing marriage as the way to do that. And some, a parent basically saying, you know, slow down, make sure you've got the right person. Don't just marry the, the first infatuation you have. And so that was a real experience of young people. And, and, you know, we often talk about Motown as the sound of young America and that itself is political, right? I mean, it's envisioning a post civil rights youth, uh, a, comfortable with racial relationships, with, with just equality, you know, sort of turning to the next generation to lead into this more equal future. But it, it wasn't necessarily a black or a white audience. It was a, a young audience that they were imagining. But, but that itself, it, even in its apolitical nature, is a political move. Um, what was really surprising to me is that there's a lot of early songs, particularly from artists earlier in their career before they made it big, or from unknown artists that are actually explicitly political and greetings this is uncle sam is a quote i actually just heard a colleague george shirley who's at the university of michigan who you know was a uh, school teacher in detroit and he was talk telling me about his draft notice he said yeah start greet started started off greetings so that was what a draft notice looked like in the in the vietnam war 
And young people were scared. They didn't want to go to the war, many of them. And, you know, getting this letter was terrifying. And so the Valadiers, which was a white doo-wop ensemble, um, recorded a song, you know, with this encouragement from Gordy to make a real statement, to say something that kids could relate to. They quoted one of the draft notices they had seen. And that song really resonated and actually, you know, sort of drove their early career. Greetings This is Uncle Sam I want to take you To a far away I need you Yes, I need about in your article the uh, a book by an author named Suzanne Smith from 1999 where where she goes into what she believes is a complicated history that Motown has with the city of Detroit uh, can you talk a little more about that yeah her book is is awesome it's called dancing in the street Motown and the cultural politics of Detroit it's, it is from 1999 and you know the, the company's relationship with Detroit is is it's the area that really gave you know the creative energy to Motown. I mean, it's the name, right? Motortown, it's a portmanteau, a combination of those two words. And their heart and soul is literally in the city of Detroit. But in, you know, at the time of the riots, um, Barry Gordy himself in 68 moves to Los Angeles. Um, part of it is that he's conquered the world of pop music in many ways. Um, and he wants to conquer the next horizon that he sees as an even bigger challenge, which is Hollywood. And he puts out a, a series of, um, you know, movies, maybe the most famous is Lady Sings the Blues, which is a Diana Ross um, vehicle, but it's really about the um, singer Billie Holiday. Uh, but there's a lot of other less memorable movies <laughs> that came out of that. Um, but Suzanne Smith really goes into this question of, of the way the streets of Detroit and the energy and the people of Detroit um, gave voice to Motown and then was basically abandoned by the company. And I think that that relationship has been a tension going forward. I mean, Gordy doesn't live in Detroit today, but but yet is is supportive of the museum and there are ways in which you know, the legacy of the company is still very much tied to the spirit of Detroit. But Detroit, of course, has struggled through all these series of renaissances and, and the arts, I think, have been a key to the expression of what Detroit is. But that there's a difference between sort of the the, the big publicity, you know, open Renaissance Center, and then the on-the-ground reality of, of many of the citizens of Detroit who are really fighters and, you know, sort of making things happen on a kind of entrepreneurial individual basis. And Motown Records was one of the huge successes of that story. But for some, including Suzanne Smith, there's there's been a, you know, not as much Detroit hasn't got as much out of Motown, maybe, as, as Motown got out of Detroit. One of the things you mentioned that is uh, is something I didn't know is that Motown uh, released a spoken word album, its very first spoken word album, which was Martin Luther King's speech for the Detroit Freedom March, and that was all the way back in 1963. 
Yeah, no, and that's amazing recording in part because you, you have recognized the language because it's it's almost a, a trial run of his I Have a Dream speech from the March for Jobs and Freedom in Washington, which was in August of 63. And um, and this is one of the things about, you know, Motown's politics. I mean, in many ways, it reflects the sincerity of the artist and of Gordy. He, he became a real admirer of Martin Luther King. Um, they released that album on the Gordy label, so it's the label that carries the record company founder's own name. Um, but also it was released in uh, August of 1968, like exactly on the same day of the March in Washington, so that you know it took maximum commercial potential. So on one hand, politics was was a a you know an expression, an attempt to argue for civil rights, to support social change. On the other hand, it had to make money, had to pay the bills in order to allow for more things to come out. And and that um, album of Martin Luther King's speech actually led to another album of Martin Luther King's speeches, which is really amazing and a part of King's legacy that we don't know. It's it's actually a King's speech about the challenges and the evils of the war in Vietnam and the way it was unfairly recruiting black soldiers um, to fight in Vietnam. And um, or disproportionately, and that became the first release on an album, a whole uh, label called Black Forum. And there were many highly political releases in Black Forum, including t two members of the Black Panthers released albums on the Black Forum label. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines, a time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is Let's go back to something a little bit earlier that we were talking about, the, uh, the first political song that you identified that Motown released in, in uh, 63. Greetings, this is Uncle Sam, by a group that was white. In your research, was there a difference between what Barry Gordy would let white Motown performers uh, say in their songs politically and what he would uh, allow for black Motown artists to say? I think so. I mean, there's it, it was safer to have white singers um, performing political songs that were more aggressively political. In this case, you know, arguing against the draft. Um, the earliest records by black singers were love songs, um, you know, so that the idea was responding to the war and talking about Vietnam, but it was either from the male or the female perspective. So the, the, the woman sort of hoping that her man would be faithful to, to her as well as to the country or to the, the soldier in Vietnam, um, promising to, to be faithful to her like he was faithful to the country. So, and those were sung by black singers in most cases, um, whereas Greetings This Is Uncle Sam was originally put out by a white group. Interestingly, by the time the country had turned itself against Vietnam, so by 1966, I think, Greetings, This is Uncle Sam came out in a different um, group, a, a black group called the Monitors. Um, so that was released in, in 1966. 
But public opinion had shifted at this time, and it, it wasn't so much that Motown was was leading the political charge at this by '66. It was really sort of riding the wave, um, and so it was a lot less risky to have a black group who could have been, you know, vilified as as being angry and and not patriotic, and you know, avoiding those kinds of ridiculous accusations. Um, was I think part of the reason why Gordy was was careful in how he released this. He also, you know, would use political songs by artists earlier in their career. So one of the the funny things about Gay's um, claim, you know, with what's going on in 1970, that he was sort of imprisoned, he couldn't make a political statement, even though he was compelled to do so. And and 70, of course, was was actually already the, the civil rights movement had been you know, but was well established. But um, he takes on a lot of different issues, environmentalism, you know, sort of the drug abuse, sort of there's, there's, there's an amazing sort of scope to his political statement and what's going on, which is a brilliant album. But even early in his career, he did a, a recording before he was well known, before he was famous, um, called, I'm trying to remember the exact title, but it's, it's Soldier Boy. It's basically him in, in Vietnam as the narrator promising to be faithful to his love back in the States. So he himself had recorded a political song earlier. What happened in between, of course, is that he became a huge star. And as Gordy's um, talent became you know, more and more valuable, he controlled and limited the range of their expression to fit that success formula. So you know, Marvin Gaye was the sex symbol of Motown. I mean, he was, was this, this incredibly handsome man and he had this beautiful crooning voice and, you know, did all of those duets with Tammy Terrell. And, and it was that sort of um, sex symbol image that, that he sort of fit into the Motown puzzle. That was his role. And so by 1970, I think he was legitimately controlled by Gordy because Gordy wanted him to play that role. He didn't want him to become a controversial figure. And so, you know, I, I don't think that Gaye was misrepresenting his experience in 1970, he was confined and was limited and basically had to put his career in line and say, if you don't release what's going on, I'm, I'm leaving the label. I want to talk about the story of uh, an artist named Tommy Good. There's a very interesting and complicated uh, story behind the release or you know, attempt to release his debut album on Motown. Take us into that, please. Yeah, Tommy Good, um, who I actually spoke to for this article, um, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I don't know if he's, he's still alive, but he was living in Michigan, was a white um, sort of blue-eyed soul performer, and, uh, you know, had a, a song that was about to be released called Baby, I Miss You. And one of the things that was characteristic of Al Abrams was a kind of a bold, uh, risk-taking uh, publicity approach. And so... Abrams told a great story to me many times about how he first got his job with with Motown, and it involved basically taking a, a pretty awful album uh, because Gordy had said, "You know, kid, if you can get this album on the radio, you can, you've got a job with me." And and he literally like went to a, a remote radio show at a tire dealership and like waited all day in the blistering heat outside the uh, radio disc jockey's um, you know remote studio and uh, eventually begged him into playing the album. And that's how he got his job with Motown. But he was a, a white Jewish kid from Detroit Northern High School and, you know, was a kind of um, diplomat. I mean, one of the things Gordy did is he used white employees to, to bridge the, the, the racial, racial bias, the racism of the time. I mean, a, a white kid operating as a publicity agent could get into the Detroit news offices in a way that, that an African-American would have a lot more trouble. But in this case, with Tommy Good, um, Abrams sort of played a reverse racism angle. I mean, he had a white artist 
Detroit uh, Motown Records was known as a black label by this time, for sure. And he basically busted in a bunch of white kids from the suburbs and gave them you know, protest signs that basically said, release Tommy Good now, please. And uh, very polite protest. But it was an idea to sort of you know, leverage racial conflict to try to get a big you know, publicity moment. It was a time when the Detroit newspapers were on strike. And so publicity was hard to come by. So he was trying to sort of create a national scandal, but it was completely engineered by the Motown record company. And then they, they acquiesced the demands to the white suburban kids who were picketing the Hitsville studio and then released the album as they had already planned to do a couple of days later um, and tried to ride that wave of controversy to notoriety for really a, an unknown artist who was breaking through, Tommy Good, who was quite a good singer and really fit into that Motown sound. But Baby, I Miss You never never really became a big hit. My baby said she was going away. She said tomorrow she'd be on her way. Promise me that she won't be long. Stay for a moment and she come right home. I thought about it. Culturally, as the 60s uh, wore on and became the 70s, uh, politics were impossible to ignore for, for basically movies, music, uh, art of every kind. And Motown began to open up, it seems, a lot more in what they were willing to uh, let their artists speak about. Uh, there is a, a single that you, you wrote about that you call Motown's most aggressive civil rights anthem, uh, and it was released by an artist or made by an artist named Joseph McLean. Uh, why, why is this one uh, not very well known? McLean had a very short tenure with Motown Records. Um, he was a, a, a black artist and a member of the uh, um, Nation of Islam, really, you know, very sort of aggressively political and wanted to make very aggressive statements and um, was attracted to Motown Records because it was a black owned company. And he came in and started you know, recording for the company. He only released one album because he realized that, that actually there were a lot of, of white Americans working for the company as well. And that was, as I said, part of Gordy's strategy was to have a multiracial staff that could navigate a racist record label, a record world. Um, and so he became disenfranchised and disillusioned by the, the fact that this black company was not actually a fully black um, company and uh, ended up having a big argument and left um, almost immediately. But but released, you know, one of the the most sort of amazing, amazing albums that, that people don't know with sort of with Zulu cries and, you know, going back and forth between Zulu and English and, you know, really talking about really fighting and dying for for African um, for Africa itself, but for civil rights more generally. So it's it's a, a pretty amazing album. So looking back now at the uh, at the history of, of Motown releases and, and their variety into politics, what's the takeaway for how we should popularly view uh, Motown's politics and, and through that Barry Gordy's politics? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, one of the contrasts is between Motown and sort of other black record labels of the time. I mean, Stax Records comes to mind. And Stax, you know, is a little bit later. 
um, really becomes prominent in the late 60s, whereas, you know, Motons founded in 1959. The, the economic and political landscape to navigate in 1959 is much more treacherous for a black company than it is by the late 60s, where, where civil rights has become, um, you know, something that sells, I guess. And I think a lot of what the decisions we can see are, are economically based, but also um, trying to create a music that's relevant, that, that means something to people, that's, that's art not just for art's sake, but that not inspires people to connect to and relate to as part of their lives. And there's an attempt to, to broaden that, to make it the sound of you know, white America and black America, really the sound of youth. Um, but there's also a, a willingness to, to connect with whatever's going on in the world around them. And so I think our understanding of Motown is actually pretty narrow. It's shaped by those few, I mean, there's an amazing number of hits, um, hundred top 10 hits in the 10 years of the record company, which is a, you know, a record that probably no company will ever, ever exceed. Um, but we know it by those, those top singles. We don't know the story of Motown by all of the, the thousands of releases that they made in order to get those, hundred singles to the top. Um, it's a lot of experiment. It's a lot of sort of entrepreneurial effort. It's, it's a lot of sort of beehive of creativity with different songwriting teams, you know, fighting it out to get to work with the, the, the most prominent groups. But a lot of these experiments um, were connecting to real life and, and they are for that very, very reason, you know, political and they, they connect with, with who we are as Americans. And I think, you know, Motown for me now really tells the story of the 1960s, of the transformation from um, 59 to, to 70, um, and the way in which this country was, was going through growing pains that are not unlike today. And I think there's a lot, of, lot to be learned from Motown. And embracing the complexity rather than just the brand success of history, the, the, the story behind the story is really what gets us into understanding all of the compromises and understandings and communication and, and adjustments that, that we have to make as Americans to, to make this a, a country that's equal for all.